to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. University of Michigan history professor Heather Ann Thompson won a Pulitzer Prize this week for her nonfiction book that details the events of the Attica prison uprising of 1971. Blood in the Water tells the story of the taking of Attica by prisoners who were upset with their poor living conditions and were later massacred by armed forces in New York. The book also provides a larger narrative about mass incarceration here in America. I spoke with Thompson for our podcast, Created Equal. She told me that the fallout from Attica has a lasting effect that we still see today, and it all begins with then Governor Nelson Rockefeller. So Nelson Rockefeller is the governor of New York, and he's a politician who enjoys a quite wonderful reputation, actually, in his state among many New Yorkers, both Republicans and Democrats. And that's because he, for many years, had had positioned himself as a liberal Republican, one willing to uh, consider drug treatment programs, one willing to uh, consider um, better housing options for the city. But By the time we get to Attica, he is a governor who's always been eager to win federal office. He wants to be the president. And it's pretty clear to him by 1971 that his party has moved dramatically rightward and that if he wants to have a political career as a Republican, he's going to need to draw a line in the sand. And Attica becomes that moment uh, when he decides to do that. Nearly 1,300 men, prisoners at the Attica State Correctional Facility, come together to protest uh, their abominable living conditions, um, ranging from uh, lack of food, being fed on 63 cents a day, to being mistreated medically, to not being allowed to practice their religion. They rebel, they stand together as one uh, for four days negotiating with the state, coming really close to a peaceful resolution of this. But the state of New York had a completely different plan, which was to retake this facility by force, by deadly force. And the result of this is that uh, 39 men are uh, shot to death by law enforcement, uh, prisoners and hostages alike, incidentally. And what is more, a full 128 people were shot so severely that, uh, you know, many six, seven bullet wounds maimed for life. And there's much that we need to think about uh, that comes out of this. The state of New York stood outside of the prison in the immediate aftermath and said the prisoners had killed the hostages, that all of this bloodshed was down to them. Now, never mind the fact that they didn't have any firearms and never mind the fact that these uh, these lies were uh, quite quickly corrected by some pretty courageous men, including a local coroner. But that story went out on the front page of the New York Times, the LA Times, every AP paper uh, across the country. And Attica is that moment when people who had been sympathetic to prison reform, you just look
look at the polls and we were we were we were moving in that direction they become furious they start writing these pieces about prisoners are brutal, they're animals, they don't deserve human rights. Um, everybody in Attica deserves the death penalty. In a volcanic orgy of mayhem, arson, and hostage seizing. I have Governor Rockefeller for you, sir. There you are. Mr. President, I know you've had a hard day, but uh, I want you to know that I just back you to the hilt. And, I, I was and, and Attica provides sort of the the inspiration, I guess, for a real meeting of the minds between Rockefeller and Nixon, who before this point, I don't suspect are all that close, but the riot and the response to it really brings them together in a very disturbing way. Yeah, it's quite fascinating. You had to do it that way because if you would have granted amnesty in this case, it would have meant that you would have had prisons in an uproar all over this country. That's right. And you, you did the right thing. It's a tragedy that these poor fellows are shot, but uh, I just want you to know that's my view. Prior to Attica, uh, Rockefeller and Nixon were very clearly rivals. In a moment, we'll hear New York's Governor Nelson Rockefeller facing the Fourth Estate as Monitor joins today's edition of Meet the Press. In fact, it irritated uh, Rockefeller to no end that that Nixon, who was far less charismatic than he was, uh, less handsome, less personable, ends up capturing this voter uh, wave of resentment and conservatism that puts him in the White House. These are people who have nothing in common with Americanism. With us today is Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York. The Republican Party must repudiate these people. He created a storm in Republican circles across the country this week with the charge that Vice President Nixon has failed to tell the nation where he stands on the major issues of the 1960 campaign. Attica, though, is an interesting moment where he's able to then say to his party, and specifically to Nixon, uh, look, you know, we're on the same page. Um, And not only that, uh, I think probably Attica suggests I actually act Mr. Nixon, whereas uh, you just talk. Um, And it does bring them together. Uh, There's some incredibly interesting tapes where on the day of the retaking of Attica, which incidentally, um, you know, we need to know is is one of the bloodiest uh, moments in the 20th century. Um, You know, thousands of bullets shot into a very small space. Um, It is a massacre. It is a bloodbath. And you have the governor of New York, Rockefeller, calling Nixon and essentially, um, you know, reveling in this retaking, being proud of it and being congratulated on it by the president. About 1,200 prisoners by taking a uh, and putting down a gas attack from helicopters uh, and then having sharpshooters on the walls, our own men, uh, we were able to pick off either from the wall or as our men went in, uh, the men who had the knives at the throat of the uh, hostages, and they did a fabulous job. Nixon has one question and one question only when he hears of this massacre at Attica, which is, is this a black business? Tell me this, is this a, are these primarily blacks that you're doing? Oh, yes. The whole thing was led by the blacks. Are all the prisoners that were killed blacks? Uh, I haven't got that report, but I have to, I would say just offhand, yes. Yeah. Uh, 
And, you know, Rockefeller confirms that it is. Of course, it wasn't just, but he confirms that it was to the president. And the president and his men go on to talk about how, well, this is right on because it will have, as they, as they say, a salutary effect on any other possible black uprisings. And that use of force is then followed up by a spate of new laws, really, again, in Rockefeller's lap, primarily the Rockefeller drug laws, that's going to move from direct force to uh, a policy mechanism to contain African-Americans in new ways after the civil rights movement. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. Today, so many citizens have been so uh, beaten down by this long, now 30-year drug war that it's almost hard to imagine a time when, first of all, this wasn't the way it was, and secondarily, to imagine a moment that we can pinpoint where it actually begins. And um, while it is true that the actual war on crime apparatus begins before Rockefeller, before Attica in 1965 uh, in the Johnson administration. When we get to Attica and then the Rockefeller drug laws, it's a whole new level of punitive. The following are the major initiatives that we must now take and that are essential to more fully meeting the people's needs in the years ahead. Prison reform, an expansion of state and local programs for combating narcotic addictions. The Rockefeller drug laws uh, take very, very minor possession, um, not just of hard drugs, but also of cannabis, and makes um, very little, four ounces, for example, uh, a, a possible, first of all, an indefinite sentence of, say, 15 years to life, but could be 25 years to life. And it completely alters policing. It completely alters sentencing. It, it jams our prisons and our jails because it is adopted everywhere. And this idea that drug addiction, which, by the way, was most of the people who were pinched in these laws, would be something that would get you a life sentence, this was a whole new era, a whole new moment, and it destroyed communities. And that plays out everywhere. The argument goes that we need law and order to protect black people from the criminals. We need law and order to protect legal immigrants from illegal immigrants. While that is indeed a soundbite political platform that many people find themselves emotionally drawn to, it simply does not stand up to the historical record. We know from the record, from the studies, from the experiences of people that um, mass incarceration makes communities much less, less safe. safe. Yeah. Heavy policing makes communities much less safe. And indeed, we also know exactly what makes them more safe. We know, or safer, we know that people with a, a higher education uh, are much better off than people with no education. We know that people who don't go to bed hungry are much better off and create safer communities than people who are desperate and starving. We know that people who are addicted and get treatment are much better 
better for their communities than people who are addicted, get criminalized, and come back still addicted, uh, and also unemployable because they have a criminal justice record, uh, and so forth. So this is not mysterious. It's not debatable. It is not a partisan question. It is a simple, factual question that we know the answer to. And so if we are really serious about public safety, we know that this journey we've been on for the last 45 years is literally the most disastrous thing we could have done for the public safety. We're we're doing the wrong thing, even if the goal were safer neighborhoods for black people or Hispanics or... Exactly. And and in fact, we have this conflation that somehow we locked everybody up and look, lo and behold, the crime rate is down. Well, you know, we, we have very, very serious scholarship on this that has actually looked at this question and finds out that no, they are disaggregated. And what is more, that in the neighborhoods that are most intensely incarcerated, uh, those places in Chicago and Baltimore and in Ferguson, they actually suffer far more violence. They endure less public safety. And so, Again, when you say black on black crime or black folks want the war on crime, I mean, it's just this ahistorical statement. Black folks don't start wanting more police in their neighborhoods until two things happen. One, the drug war has already completely overtaken neighborhoods. And two, there's nobody else to call but the police because we have completely decimated all other social service options. So you have a kid who is, you know, running wild and drug addicted and, you know, scaring other people in the neighborhood, you know, whereas you might have been able to call a social worker, you might have been able to deal with this before it gets out of hand. Now, call the cops. you got to call the cops. It is quite ahistorical to to level an entire shift in public policy on any one event. But that said, um, I think it's very clear to me that Attica plays uh, an indispensable, albeit completely unintentional, uh, role in ushering in one of the most punitive moments we've ever had in American history. That was U of M history professor Heather Ann Thompson. Her book, Blood in the Water, won the Pulitzer Prize earlier this week. That's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. See you tomorrow.